Both Barley and Niffler need high-powered dog food to help them out in the field. Whenever I live somewhere with refrigeration, I love feeding them Nom Nom Now. Niffler can be a slow and picky eater, and he actually dances and whines when he knows Nom Nom Now is coming out of the fridge, and then licks the bowl clean. Nom Nom's food is full of fresh proteins that your dog loves, and the vitamins and nutrients they need to thrive. You can actually see proteins in vegetables like beef, chicken, pork, peas, carrots, kale, and more. When you sign up for Nom Nom Now, you share information on your dog's age, breed, weight, allergies, food preferences, and, importantly, their activity level. Then they'll tailor specially made blends and serving sizes to your dogs, which are delivered in a huge, exciting refrigerated box. If you're ready to make the switch to fresh, you can order Nom Nom Now today by going to zen.ai slash canine conservationists one and use the offer code canine conservationists all one word to get 50 percent off your first order plus free shipping so again that is zen.ai slash canine conservationists number one and use the offer code canine conservationists at checkout you'll get 50 percent off and of course nom nom comes with a money money back guarantee if your dog's tail isn't wagging within 30 days, Nom Nom will refund your first order. No fillers, no nonsense, just Nom Nom. Hello, and welcome to the Canine Conservationists podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss detection training, welfare, conservation biology, and everything in between. I'm Kayla Fratt, one of the co-founders of Canine Conservationists, where we train dogs to detect data for land managers, researchers, agencies, and NGOs. Today, we're going to continue on our kind of mini-series highlighting different cool projects and, that involve discrimination work and how that has been handled with Caroline Finlay. Um, but before we get into it, we're going to go through our science highlight. Today's science highlight is titled Relative Abundance of Endangered San Joaquin Kit Foxes. Vulpus macrotus mutica, based on scat detection dog surveys. It was authored by Deb Smith and a bunch of others and published in the Southwestern Natural in 2006. This was prepared by our lovely volunteer, Heidi Benson. So the question of this study was that while the kit fox has been listed for over 30 years as endangered, little is known about its relative abundance throughout its historic range. This study aims to assess kit fox relative abundance throughout their native range in California. This study took place in three distinct regions, northern, central, and southern ranges of the San Joaquin Valley in central California. Scat searches with detection dogs were conducted opportunistically from May 2001 to February 2003, and the dogs were detect trained to detect kit fox, red fox, and gray fox scat as the overall pop fox population and dynamic was of interest to the authors. In total, 213 kilometers on 24 properties were searched in the northern range, 222 kilometers on 18 properties were surveyed in the central range, and 104 kilometers on nine properties were searched in the southern range. Routes sur surveyed at each property varied from 1 to 37 kilometers and included unpaved roads and vegetation. DNA results from 17 scats in the northern region came back as red fox. In the central region, three scats came back as kit fox, five were red fox, and two were gray fox. No fox scats were found during surveys in the southern range, although several kit fox scats were located pri during prior surveys in this region. The authors note that, quote, Our combined results indicate that kit foxes were either absent on the specific public and private properties we surveyed within their historical range, or only occurred intermittently in these areas, end quote. Overall, this study showed that kit fox abundance within their native California range is low and quite variable. 
The absence of Kit Fox from fragmented and or isolated areas in the southern range indicate that Kit Fox may be highly sensitive to habitat fragmentation and therefore carry an increased risk of risk of extirpation in these areas. The authors stress that conservation efforts must be focused on maintaining habitat connectivity in areas with more robust populations. So as, as always, we've got a little bit of a limitation here. The study was geographically limited to mainly public lands due to the difficulties of acquiring access to private lands. So without further ado, let's get to our interview with Caroline. So Caroline, why don't you start out with giving us a little bit of an introduction of yourself, the dogs you work with, and kind of your general, what you're up to these days. Catch us up on, on all that good stuff. Awesome. Thanks. Thank you very much for having uh, having me on. Um, so yeah, I run a small business over here called Conservation Detection Dogs Northern Ireland. And as you can probably tell, it's based in Northern Ireland. Um, so I was working in God, conservation for about, it must be 10, 15 years. Um, I did my PhD in conservation. I then um, was working on a project and the there was someone... I was actually working on red squirrels and there was someone in England who had trained their dogs to find dead red squirrels during squirrel pox outbreaks. And I was like, oh my God, I have a Springer Spaniel. Maybe he would be amazing at this. And probably how a lot of us start, they're like, oh, we'll get our dog involved in our work. Um, So I got in contact with them and they put me in touch with this amazing organization over in England who came over to help um, train me and a couple of other volunteers at the time. And it's pretty much grown massively since then. Uh, so that was 2019. And then in 2021, I went full time. I got a lot more dogs. <laughs> so I now have four dogs, uh, three Springer Spaniels and one German Shorthaired Pointer. And yeah, we do a range of projects. Um, our main like bread and butter is the wind farm work, like a lot of us. Um, that's how we get the money in. And then I have a lot of fun projects I take on. Um, I like doing research projects because I, I have this background in research. I was a data analyst for a while. I don't, you know, I don't want to lose those skills. So I do take on some of the more random stuff. Um, so we, we do have a seabird paper coming out soon on uh dogs being used for finding seabirds. Um, We've got a research paper on curlew nest detection, hopefully being submitted. Um, And yeah, we're now doing this very, very cool research project on a, on a species of moss as well. So it's, it's fun. (laughs) Yeah, that sounds super fun. So um, if you've got time, well, we've got time. Tell us a little bit about your about your five dogs. Um, are they all kind of their ages and where they're at? Do you have any? Do any of them have any specializations or anything within your line of work, or do they all do everything? So, um, so it's four dogs. The our oldest, um, Rufus. He's nine. He was my first dog I trained. He specialized in. They all do bat and bird, but he specialized on red squirrel and Manx shearwater so that's the seabird that we helped look for um, around islands um, around Ireland um, then we have Zeba she's five she's the German short-haired pointer so she is doing the curlew nest finding it's be- and you know what pointers if you're doing anything with like bird nests that are out on the ground out in the open I advise you get a pointer they're absolutely brilliant at it um so she's doing that she's also doing the moss 
work as well. And then I've got Monty, who is two. He um, does rodent detection for biosecurity. Um, and then I've got Jasper, who is one, and he's a trainee. He doesn't do anything at the minute. He is a freeloader, but eventually he will be absolutely fantastic. <laughs> Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that's very exciting. And yeah, I, I've been really wanting to um, branch out. I think for my next dog, I'm probably going to move, step away from Border Collies for once and uh, try something that is a little bit more kind of bred for this line of work um, and see what it's like to have that half of it being pre-installed and then have to work so much harder on some of the responsiveness and some of the other things that, you know, Border Collies come pre-installed with. Yeah, um, so, I advise you get a Springer. They're brilliant. <laughs> Yeah, I've been really wanting to try. I know Simone Gadbois just got a sprawly. Um, and I feel like that would be a really nice next step for me because then I get some of the collie stuff, but also get some of the Springer stuff. But they're not very common um, on this side of the pond. Um, I know they're a lot more common over in the UK. Yeah. So anyway, so tell us about this Moss Project. That's what we're here to talk about a little bit. How? how first off, how did this come about? You know, Moss <laughs> is not something that I think of as being a super well-funded area. I haven't heard of a lot of work with dogs being involved with moss. So where did this come from? So it was actually, um, we got contacted by an amazing and very imaginative person, <laughs> uh, a woman called Neve. She works for the museums here and the Center, uh, Center for Environmental Data and Records. So it's like a data center here. And every couple of years, they have to re report on certain species that are important or represent different habitats or like um, maybe are suffering in some way. And they're reporting on them to make sure that if we're doing things right or if we're not doing things right, then we can recover from that. Um, and one of those species is this very rare moss. So I'll give you the like common name rather than go into like the Latinized name, so I'll probably pronounce it wrong, but it's called the slender feather green moss. And it's, it's very particular about where it grows, but it seems to be in Northern Ireland anyway. We only really have records for it in one or two places. They're not, it's not very common. And even in those places, it's really, really localized as well. So really, really rare, but also it looks like a lot of other mosses. So you kind of have to be a moss person, like a proper bryophytologist to, to be able to recognize it. So it's tricky. Um, and thankfully, we had a fantastic uh, bryophytologist, um, Richard, working with us from the Northern Ireland Environment Agency. And without him, we would have been absolutely stuffed because it is such a tricky, tricky moss to find and recognize. <laughs> Yeah, I just did a quick Google of it, and partially the name is so beautiful. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it does look very mossy. Yes. Yes. <laughs> um, and I mean, moss is kind of uh, notoriously difficult to identify in the first place. And then, well, honestly, I'm not even sure a lot of these Google results don't necessarily seem to be of the same species. So I'm not sure Google <laughs> knows what it's talking about here. Um, so yeah, well, okay, so... That I think that sets the stage really well for, <laughs> you know, what we want to talk about here. So the discrimination work. So they came to you, they decided, you know, they were going to give it a go with the dogs. Um, what were your like first thoughts when they came to you about using dogs for moss? What were, were you excited? Were you worried about anything in particular? Um, so super excited, mainly because I haven't really done that much plant work at all. So I was kind of like, oh, this will be fun. This will be interesting. Um, I googled 
moss detection dogs and nothing came up. So I was worried <laughs> then because I was like, oh, why has nobody else done this? Um, yeah. But here, willing to give anything a go is kind of um, the thing. And the good thing about uh, the fact that it only occurs in one or two places, it means that if I'm doing wind farm stuff, it's very unlikely to be there. So I could put, you know, any of my dogs yeah. on it. Um, I chose, right. I did, yeah, I did pick the pointer because she is very good with detailed work. And mm-hmm. I thought this might need detailed work. Her nose is incredible. So I thought, yeah, we'll, we'll get the, the super sniffer in for this one. Uh, yeah. Let the, the boys handle the wind farms for a bit while she works on this. <laughs> okay, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Canine Conservationists offers several on-demand webinars to help you and your dog go along in your journey as a conservation dog team. Our current on-demand webinars are all roughly one hour long and priced at $25. They include Puppy Scent Work, all about raising and training a conservation puppy, Found It, Alerts and Changes of Behavior, and What You Looking For, Teaching Your Dog a Target Odor. Find these three webinars along with jackets, treat pouches, mugs, bento boxes, and more over at our website, canineconservationist.org slash shop. So tell us a little bit about then what um, that early training looked like. Did you start thinking about discrimination work from the very beginning? Um, and if so, kind of how did you introduce that? Because um, I know, you know, we've talked about this quite a bit on the show, and that's the whole point of this series. There's a lot of different schools of thought about how and when to introduce kind of discrimination. So, yeah, we think about discrimination fairly early on um, in the training, and that's what we've done for every odor that we've done. And that's like seabirds, well, from bats to seabirds um, and yeah, everything. So the first step for the moss project, it was pretty much me meeting up with our moss expert, Richard, and him walking me around some fields in the area that we knew the moss occurred for him to show me like the variety of mosses that were actually there. And he took me through like literally, ev- we were there for three hours, like looking at moss. It was, it was a big day, oh um, yeah. <laughs> like climbing over barbed wire fences and everything. But um, yeah, we were going through like all the different like families as well, not just uh-huh. like ones that looked similar. It was like, cause we don't know like what in moss that will be the odor that the dog right. picks up on. So like I was picking plants that weren't mosses out of the environment to discriminate against. I was picking uh-huh. like um, like water samples as well, and then like oh, interesting, like as much different weird things that I could think of that possibly the dog could confuse. I took home with me. Like I think I ended up t- bringing back like twenty glass jars of different things, and then like a uh-huh. load of, a load of the actual target samples as well. Uh-huh. So um, thankfully, we were really lucky that um, this moss isn't actually. You don't have need a license to actually hold it. It's not protected in that way. So uh-huh. it was great. I could actually take like samples home with me without having like to go through yeah. all the like bureaucratic like getting licenses and things like that there, which was good. Yeah, I was just gonna ask when you said you were able to bring it home. I was like, oh, yeah, that's convenient. Because <laughs> um, yeah, next life easier. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely both with endangered and invasive um, plants in particular. It's so hard to some can be sometimes that's you know, the biggest hurdle that we face. So, and then as you're going about training, at what point do you start disc- um, introducing those non-target odors um, to help? Um, Zeba is the, the pointer, right? Yeah. Um, to help her discriminate properly between everything. Yeah. So we, so um, Zeba's uh, trained on Kong. 
So we implement mm-hmm. using Kong. As soon as we kind of get down um, and remove the Kong from the imprinting process, we start adding in different um, things for discrimination. Usually it's things that I've possibly contaminated the right. um, actual odor with. So gloves, the empty jars, like clean empty jars, or if I've mm-hmm. used bags, then bags, things like that. Things that are like my fault <laughs> go in sure. first. Um, and then that would... Once, like, she, usually that takes no time at all. Cause she's so used to having those involved in the discrimination. Right. Like, that, she's like, yeah, oh, there, there's gloves again, or, you know. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right, right, right. Still not those. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, those again. Um, so she's like, oh, yeah, get those out of the way. And then we start adding in. So I started with things that I thought she wouldn't struggle with. So plants that are from the well actually i started with a moss from my garden that was from a completely different environment (laughs) so collected in exactly the same way but not in that actual environment that that target moss came from so we started with that she had no issues whatsoever with that she was like oh it's random that that's in there so so completely passed that over we then went to like plants that are not mosses but from the same environment so like okay. reeds different grasses like boggy kind of bogland plants mm-hmm. got them out of the way then we went water samples from the area okay. you know this is insane and then we went i love this <laughs> and then we went to um, mosses that are not related like not closely related to this moss so things uh-huh. like sphagnum um sure. there is uh springy turf uh mo- moss as well because they they appear everywhere they're all over the shop but they're mm-hmm. not closely related to this moss and then we went into mosses that are actually closely related it was a big process <laughs> yeah yeah so and are you doing this is this all in kind of like a lineup situation or are you using like a search room or like your back garden um yeah, so it's more it? of a lineup situation. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, we use uh, pots, just randomized pots, um, yep. and uh, we do everything double blind. So I have my um, my other handler and trainer, Patrice, helping me, and she is the expert at doing discrimination now because she's done so much with me. <laughs> so she yeah. organizes all my pots while um, me and Ziba leave the room to, <laughs> to usually play. So. <laughs> Lovely. Yeah. And yeah, so did you, um, at what stage or if any, did she start actually having problems and like hesitating more uh, or actually even fully alerting to something that was not the, um, oh gosh, I've already forgotten what it was called, the springy green leaf moss? Slender feather. Oh God, now you've got me. Slender feather green moss. moss. Yes. Yes. Slender feather green moss. Yes. Yes. Springy. There is a springy one, so that's fair. Um, okay. Yeah, so she didn't struggle until we got to one hook moss. So mm-hmm. that the target moss is a hook moss, and this mm-hmm. other one that she struggled with is also a hook moss. And I was like, oh, okay, weird, because um, we didn't expect it. So we she wasn't so we'd already started doing um like field trials at this time because this you know discrimination was lasting so long we were going out into the the field to give her a go at this point and she was indicating on the correct moss and not any other mosses in the environment so i was like Uh okay so she's not indicating on it when she's out but she's indicating on it when we're in the discrimination kind of room so 
Yeah. So what we did was, I know it was, it was weird. Um, so what we did is we got rid of all our training samples. (laughs) We got rid of everything (laughs) and we pretty much started again (laughs) because we were like, right, something weird's going on. And we think what we think happened because we were, we managed to get over this issue. And what we think happened is that some of that other hook moss was in one of our training samples. Uh, mm-hmm. and was contaminating it because they they look so similar like yeah no it would be really hard you've got to yeah really i'm imagining mosses are so much less discreet as a sample yeah. um to try to collect and make sure that you only have that one thing and i know like that's a problem we've discussed in some carnivores that tend to use like communal latrines if you're yeah. wanting to pick up um you know some fox scat um of one species and you pick it up from a latrine there's a very good chance it's been contaminated with at least the urine of other species um, if you don't want if you don't want that that could be a big issue especially as far as your training samples go oh that makes perfect sense okay so tell me more how did how did we fix it <laughs> So yeah, got rid of all our training samples. We then got Richard out again. <laughs> God love Richard. Honestly, we dragged him up a mountain about five, six times. Because uh, that's where the moss is. It's like yeah, up a mountain. Oh, it's not easy. Like, it's like, oh, all right. Um, so we dragged him up there again. And um, we were like, right, we're going to do it. Like, we went through all those samples and we're like, is this 100% correct this time? And he was like, yes, this is it. And I was like, okay, this is it. And we just mm-hmm. had to go back to the drawing board and help yeah. people kind of like work out that it's this one by itself, not this mixed in with a little bit of the other one. That was yep. the actual target. It was, it, and to be honest, we're not even 100% sure that that's what happened because right. like the sample, it's so hard to go through them to make sure that they're all the same that yeah it was so interesting that's so interesting well and this is one of the other episodes that's going to come out probably as the last one in this series is going to be talking about the work we do with action for cheetahs in kenya and their discrimination process um and it was really similar where the dogs had in the field historically never actually had problems with finding anything but cheetah scat but in the training rooms, they were alerting on Caracol and Leopard Scat pretty consistently. And there were a couple samples that were more problematic than others. Mm-hmm. Um, and it had been going on kind of for a while. We weren't quite sure exactly when it had started. And yeah, like one of the first things we did is like, all right, let's just get rid of everything. Like we just have yeah. to we just have to start from scratch because we don't know. And uh, you know, I, we had all sorts of different guesses about, you know, did two samples get swapped at some point? Did something spill into another one? You know, who knows, um, as far as labeling or, you know, there was all sorts of different hypotheses and fundamentally with a lot of this stuff, you're just maybe never going to be able to figure out, but starting from scratch seems to be the best, the best, um, best approach. So did you have any other problems from there on out? So it was just that one hook moss, it was that um, one hook moss. Honestly, this thing was like the bane of my life for like two weeks. I was like, oh I my hated, gosh. Yeah, hated yeah. this hook moss. But the annoying thing was that they they occur in the same habitat. So really, when uh-huh. you get one, you will get the other. So yeah. it was tricky. Whenever we're trying to get the perfect sample, they kind of do occur together. Although weirdly, she never really indicated on the wrong. She never indicated on the wrong moss when we were out at site uh-huh. and we had richard with us to verify mm-hmm. now he's yeah. actually going out again we've went out now without him to see if the dog in, in more of an applied way can be mm-hmm. 
used in this way where me as a handler and the dog go out and we find patches and then send Richard out afterwards and go, were we right? So he's going out again now for us to actually check, um, well, if we're right. So it should be interesting to see. But yeah. any time that he's been with us, she's never she's never indicated on the wrong moss. So yeah. it definitely seems to be it's the target moss plus the other moss. And uh-huh. what was what she had in her head. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so how big were your training samples? I'm imagining you could pick out like a couple sprigs of moss or were you getting like good clods that she was being trained on? Good clods. Yeah, okay. they were a couple of um, a couple of inches uh, wide. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, they were good because when the moss does occur, it can occur in quite a big patch. And then uh-huh. sometimes little tiny patches. So we kind of yeah. had to like get a nice size sample so that we're not either missing the really big patch, but we're not missing the little tiny patches as well. Sure. And then we also had the issue that we had major snow here. So for a while, the moss was under snow. So right. that okay. was, well, yeah. what can we do? But um, but yeah, no, we had, we had nice sized um, clumps of moss to work on. Okay. Yeah, I was just kind of thinking that I can imagine as long as that moss is generally occurring at a larger size than in, yeah, kind of out in a field situation, even if it does mix up a little bit, she's still likely, you know, she's an experienced dog, she knows to go to kind of that highest concentration of odor, which should still bring you to the correct thing. So yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, yeah, I'm excited to hear what um, what Richard comes back with um, after this. So do you have a good feeling of um, I actually have no idea what conservation for a moss might look like. Like what are kind of, they're just kind of trying to find these patches and then are they going to try to protect those areas? Are they trying to propagate more from these parent populations or kind of what are some of the goals for them on a conservation side? So this area in particular, they're really wanting to get some protection um, mm-hmm. for it. Um, uh, they are looking at different species in the area, not just the moss. Now, mm-hmm. this moss is very particular about the like acidity that it likes to be in. Um, okay. It almost likes neutral um, kind of areas. So it wants acidic soil, but like a alkaline water source running through it to make it almost neutral. It's very particular. Very so particular. It, what oh, a fancy moss. moss. Yeah. So Fussy. like, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it really wants, um, it doesn't want any additional things added to that environment or it starts like it just does not survive it at all. So you don't want like fertilizers and things being added and you don't really um, want like anything that's going to up up that acidity in any way of the water course and things like that so yeah it's uh very particular that moss <laughs> yeah of course i mean honestly that is kind of one of the things that just puts you at risk for being uh an at yeah an endangered or threatened species is mm-hmm. having having your niche and sticking to it sometimes isn't um the the best strategy i mean and that's you know we talk about the opposite for our invasive species as, as soon as you hear some things like a generalist that produces ten thousand babies every season you're like well that could be a problem yep <laughs> exactly so. Well, cool. So, and then kind of long-term is the plan to continue trying to get you and Ziba out for these more operational sur- searches and just keep keep getting <clears> out there? Or is this is there more of a, uh, like, okay, we'll do this for a summer, we'll survey this area, then we'll have our information, and maybe you guys will come back in a couple of years to do it again or something like that? So they... The recording season for um, the reports is at the end of this year. So... Okay. 
they have to do a lot of surveys by the end of this year to see if they can find this moss and other species. They're thinking about other species now that we can put the dogs onto. Um, oh, cool. And uh, yeah, so they're hoping that we're actually going to be able to expand their coverage massively because the dogs, they are so much faster. Like if you can imagine you're looking for a green thing in a green field, it's hard. But the dogs are, because they're using odour, it's just so much faster than people sure, doing yeah. it. So we're hoping that um, we can get the dogs out to more sites so we can actually, yeah, just, just cover the entirety of Northern yeah. Ireland. would be great. <laughs> oh, how cool. So it seems like we've already gotten this question answered, but just, just so I can ask it. So you have not seen any um, kind of because you exposed something in discrimination early on in lineups, it's not like she's seeming to recognize that in the field. Um, even if, uh, have you had days where you don't find any moss at all? Um, yeah, no targets at all? Yeah. So some of the species that we actually use in discrimination would be very common at some of the wind farms we would work at. And I was like, this will be interesting. Um, but like no not even like not even showing interest like she never batted an eyelid at like a whole clump of sphagnum that we went past and sphagnum we would have used um in discrimination training because it's so common in that area right so yeah. no like she literally didn't even show a bit of interest in some of the discriminators <laughs> discriminators we put out very cool yeah i mean and again that's kind of what i've always again you know that that's what i've always heard from how bomb drug etc folks do it so i was actually really proud of zeba because we had all these people who are really really interested in moss in the field with us at the same time as her looking for oh, moss totally so they're just like oh what's this oh what's that poking things all over the place and she's like not indicating on the places that she's poking i'm like thank goodness <laughs> because yeah. like how much of a nightmare would that be? <laughs> totally. Well, and actually, that so that's something else that comes to mind a little bit for me with this question, because I have border collies, and particularly one of my border collies, Barley, is so extremely suggestible that I don't think that would have been the case for him. I think if I took him into the field with a bunch of moss nerds and they were excitedly poking around at things, I would have to be handling him very, very carefully to have him not start indicating to everything that everyone was pointing at. We even, we just did a survey a couple days ago where it was kind of a full mammal survey that the students are working on. So they're picking up on areas that peccaries have rooted or mm -hmm. um, armadillo dens and all sorts of stuff. And he's just trained on the carnivore scats. Um, and we were just kind of along to do like a demonstration outreach event with these students. Um, and yeah, within a, a two hour search by the end, he was starting to, if you, if you bent down and started looking too much at the peccary stuff, he was starting to come over and like, kind of lie down like you know like it would definitely be a problem for him um that we would have to be very careful about if he was yeah. going on surveying that way for a long time so i wonder how much of the breed tendencies may come into that as well yeah. or again something that i would just really need to kind of consciously train him that like yeah. hey even if other people are interested in this it's never ever going to be the thing that pays and we would just need to do that a lot more in practice mm -hmm. When so Zeba is, um, she was an explosives detection dog before I got her, and okay. she did have a tendency when I first got her. She did have a tendency to indicate on human disturbance. So, and I uh, think explosives, though, that's kind of a good thing because sure. if someone's yeah. put a bomb somewhere, they will have to have rooted around and like put things in and put explosives mm -hmm. in. But I had to train her off that because. Uh -huh. 
In conservation, we're the exact opposite. There should be no human interference at all with our actual operational finds. And if she's only yeah. finding things that have human disturbance, that's bad. <laughs> so right. we, like at the start, we had to do a lot of work to get her off actually indicating on um, just things that we've touched or like poked or moved or yeah it's this is why I do think conservation is one of the harder detection um like industries because there is no human disturbance involved in our operational finds so the dog is trained on things of human disturbance because we can't remove that and then they're going Mm -hmm. out and finding things that don't have that and I do think that's the that's the hardest transition um for them to get yeah well, and there's and, and not that this isn't the case in some other um, detection fields, but there's just so much variability in what yeah. we're looking for. I mean, it's so wild to think about, you know, the difference in odor profiles, you know, where we're, we're getting gearing up for a black bear project here in North America. Mm. And just thinking about the variability from month to month in what their diet looks like um, and then comparing like a nursing sow versus an adult male or cubs and like the hormones, and the diet, like and there's just so much yeah. variability. And then you're trying to understand this huge scent picture within one species or a group of species, but then exclude a couple others. And that was, you know, as when I was talking with the teams in Guatemala and they were asking me about, well, what's it, you know, is it going to be hard for them to include Margay and Jagarundi as well as the ocelot and the puma and the jaguar? And I was like, honestly, no. What would be really hard, though, is if you ask me to find everything but puma or mm-hmm. everything but Jagarundi within those mixes. Um, you know, I think if it's a if it's a big umbrella and we just want to find any, everything under the umbrella, that's relatively straightforward but yeah um i can imagine being a lot trickier i have and i've never tried to do something like that i'm sure it's possible but it would a lot it would involve quite a bit more work i think than what we had put into um, yeah sure look at the the bat work like we can get Mm -hmm. dogs onto bat carcasses so easy and there's so many Mm -hmm. different species of bats and they're still like um we actually uh one of the fellas that we do a lot of work with down south got um a greater was it a greater horseshoe bat recently we hadn't trained on one and we were like uh-huh. oh can we have a go and like the dogs like head on it no bother and like perfect yeah. indications and i was like oh well, this is excellent makes you yeah. feel a lot better you know like, oh, totally yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I think both of my dogs were originally trained on two or three bat species. And at our, our study sites, we generally get kind of five and five and si- five to six species. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are a couple of the really rare ones that are the ones that we're most worried about that we never actually found, which there is always that little tickle of a doubt where it's like, yeah. <laughs> did, are we sure we didn't find it because we never trained on it or because it wasn't there? There's always a little bit of that question, yeah. but, you know, kind of having seen where they did generalize really well otherwise like i think we're pretty good same thing when we were doing our um, carnivore surveys in guatemala both niffler and barley alerted to a couple bird carcasses at various points um Mm. because they're uh on our wind farms we were supposed to also be finding bird carcasses and that's actually one that i've loved as having something that they will alert to in any environment because it means like there's dead birds just about everywhere i can always confirm what it is <laughs> so i yeah. always know what they're alerting to um because you pretty much are always going to be able to find feathers um and it just gives them one kind of blanket thing that just about anywhere we go even if we've got really low target density they've got a good chance of finding a bird um and also interestingly i mean i can't say for sure 
but it seemed like they were mostly finding birds when there was not much scat around. So I think there was a little bit of like a preference in there as far as, you know, we'd been hammering the scat so hard for the months leading up. It it seemed like on the transects where we had like 10 samples in a couple kilometers, we weren't getting any birds. Um, and That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, that would be one that would be kind of fun to actually do a study on yeah. um, and kind of confirm, you know, because again, it's so hard to say are you not finding something because it's not there or because of something that the dog is actually doing? Yeah, because you'd almost think it would be the opposite way that they would have a preference for bird because they've done so much wind farm work and they've yeah. had so much like reinforcement with bird. Mm-hmm. That you'd think that they would put bird first before scats. So that's really interesting. Yeah. And it, I mean, we're also we're in the tropics everything is eating everything so it is also very possible that there are very few bird carcasses out Mm -hmm. um and you know with the canopy being (laughs) i don't know like a half kilometer high it's like i don't even know how much how many birds are even making it all the way to the forest floor um one one other thing to put in there just and the, just our specific study site where we were for our wind farms was actually really really low bird fatality compared okay. to a lot of the other wind farm you know just talking mm-hmm. to other folks who have done a lot of wind farm work even you know within just a couple hundred miles of where we were working we got very very low bird numbers compared to others so they had a lower reinforcement history than maybe like most wind farm dogs would mm-hmm. That's good. <laughs> it's nice yeah. to hear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, that particular wind farm is great for the birds. Um, don't know why, but yeah, that wasn't my job. So, yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Is there anything else about this project or about discrimination that you wanted to bring up um, or circle back to? I do. So I have, all, I've trained all my dogs using um, that kind of Kong method where we kind of like imprint them on the Kong or we train them with Kong first and then we use that to imprint them. And I do think it, it helps kind of reduce the errors later on in discrimination because they have such a clear picture in their head that this is mm-hmm. what I'm looking for. This was the thing that I got a ton of reinforcement for at the beginning that my Kong was with it. That's the thing. That's what I'm looking for. And I, I honestly think that has helped a little bit. Now I know there's like, loads of different ways to do this but I do I feel like there is something there that does it does help um having that kind of step put in yeah no I think that makes a lot of sense and I think that's something that I'm going to definitely try with my next dog it's not what I did with Niffler and I've honestly been really considering as I'm going and I'm going to be starting a PhD program in September um I really want to re- go back and hammer a lot of the foundations really, really hard with Niffler and potentially even restart him on a couple things. Um, and that's one of the things that I'm considering mm-hmm. for him. Yeah. It's the, I, yeah. Like I'll be honest, all <laughs> I've used Kong as the first odor for all my dogs, but I've trained it for every single one. I've trained it differently. So uh-huh. there's a whole load of different ways you can't put them on Kong. Right. It doesn't need to be just the one. So Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, and honestly, the biggest thing I've been really excited about trying with him, um, and again, now we're we're wrapping up here. I promise everyone yeah, at home or on the car, in the car, or whatever. No, it's fine. We're we, we're still under time. Um, yeah. But we just for book club for Patreon read um, a gosh, I'm gonna re- not remember the full title of it, but it was an article um, about dogs detecting chronic wasting disease positive samples um, that came out of Penn Vet Working Dog Center, and. The thing that actually I was most excited about having read that article was how they 
took the dogs from a lineup to an area search using the pots kind of, it was almost like the opposite of how you would teach channel weaves and agility. Um, so they start with the, the pots in a line mm-hmm. and then they start moving them, you know, maybe a meter apart. So the dog is going left, right, left, right, left, right to the different pots as they're doing their, their search. And then they just kept moving them apart and then started visually occluding them as a way to help the dogs learn to quarter you have springers so you might not need to ever do this (laughs) but um niffler my my younger dog is a very linear searcher um and he tends to go very very fast in very large circles um which works really really well on wind farms and then um you know and i've talked about this several times in this podcast but bringing him to guatemala was a big hit in the face for me on some of the foundations that we neglected um in getting him up to speed on the wind farm so quickly um and this is one of the things that, you know, he's just not a dog who naturally quarters. Um, and I'd rather, I'm going to try this route instead of teaching him directionals, kind of in a more of like a hunting dog style. Yeah. Um, and yeah. I'm very, very excited about it. It looks like just a really cool, clean way to use the placement of your targets to teach the dog the start strategy that you want to see. And I love that sort of stuff. Yeah, the we did... Uh, we did train our dogs to search objects before, uh, uh-huh. as search development before we go into like actual area search. And it definitely, I think with Springers, it makes them concentrate better. Um, Springers have a habit of just running about <laughs> mental, hoping that they run into odor and then they stop and be like, yeah. there we go. And you're like, no, you, could you please like yeah. slow down with and a actually bit of strategy, search my, my, my yeah. sweet child. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> Run about mental is not a strategy. Uh, so yeah, no, we start them all on objects um, and do kind of like search development. And even if it's just like self-retrieves, retrieving their ball. Um, and yeah, it makes a massive, massive difference. Um, and then introducing the handler much later. So it's all independent to start off with. Yeah. And then the handler comes in. Yeah. 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 And I love, yeah. I just love finding those little things. And it just, it, this article was so lovely. It had a nice little diagram. We'll make sure to link nice. it in the show notes. <laughs> Wow, this is such a clean way to do something that I feel like I've kind of muddled around or like thought about or suggested for students before. And here is just someone who's got a diagram and a whole plan. Like, Mm -hmm. wow, I love it when you do that. (laughs) All right. Well, Caroline, this has been really, really lovely. I'm super excited for people to get to hear more about Ziva and some of the cool work you've been doing. Is there, as we wrap up here, do do you have places that people can find you online? And or do you have any uh, super exciting projects that you want to make sure people know about aside from I mean, you've got moss, you've got curly, you've got wind farms, um, <laughs> anything else that people should know about you before we go? Yeah, so you can uh, find us on Facebook, at Conservation Detection Dogs NI. Um, I'm on Twitter um, as Dr. Caroline Finley. I don't know what my thingy is, my at, but you know, you'll find me. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah so a person with a dog in the, in the picture. Uh, then um, our website is cddni.com um and yeah uh we should hopefully have our we have a paper on seabird detection coming out soon it's Mm -hmm. got it's like yeah everybody who i could find who was doing seabird detection using dogs in the world pretty much helped write it so it should be it should be very cool it's like all recommendations on stuff um on how to do it and how to get dogs and how to select the people that will do it with you and how to use the dogs properly and all this here it's a cool paper um so hopefully oh my gosh i can't wait yeah i shall make sure that you are sent it as soon as it is out um we might even do do, uh we can get you and kyoko back on for an encore episode i assume she was involved oh Yes. Anyone else who is who is who is big involved? Maybe we'll do a, a whole overview. I think that would be a lot of fun. 
Yeah, yeah, Kyoko's definitely involved, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that sounds right up someone I know is Allie. Yeah. So. Well, Caroline, this was really lovely. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And for everyone at home, thank you so much for listening. I hope that you learned a lot and you're feeling inspired to go outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and skill set. You can join our Patreon, our book club, our course, buy mugs and t-shirts and bento boxes, and just donate to us if you're so if you so please over at canineconservationists.org. We'll be back in your earbuds next week. Thanks. Bye.